because you'd be surprised when you're trying to get it to a real clean, clear one to two sentences with meaning when the stakes are high, how challenging it can be. Welcome back to Pete's Grit. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric ICU fellow in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. So today we are so excited to have Dr. Stockton Beveridge and Dr. Katie Maddox with us here on the podcast. Dr. Beveridge is the Director of Pediatric Palliative Care here at Children's Health Dallas and also an excellent educator. Dr. Maddox previously was a primary care pediatrician, but now is in a full-time pediatric palliative care specialist. She's our leading educator in the practical side of having these difficult conversations with families. Yes, we are so excited that Zach was able to recruit these two to come and do an interview with us. There are so many great tips here from how to get palliative care involved early and appropriately to really the nuts and bolts of having these difficult conversations. That's right. Let's jump right in. Welcome back to Pete's Grit, everyone. We are so excited to have Drs. Stockton Beveridge and Dr. Katie Maddox with us today, both palliative care specialists here at Children's Medical Center Dallas. To get things started, Katie and Stockton, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and maybe share something you like to do outside of medicine? Yeah. So like you mentioned, I'm a pediatric palliative care doctor, and I came into this field after spending a little bit of time in primary care. Um, so this is a transition of somewhat for me in my career and I've really enjoyed it thus far. Outside of my time in the hospital, I like to go hiking and biking and swimming. We have two small boys and they are much kinder to each other and to us when we are out outdoors. And so anything we can do to get them out of the house, that's where you'll find us most days. Yeah, I'm Stockton. I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Uh, I got into palliative care fresh out of residency, so I went straight into a, a fellowship, and then from fellowship stepped into the medical directorship role here at Children's in Dallas, which is through UT Southwestern. But I've really loved it. It's been a kind of an interesting way to start being junior faculty, and that there's been a lot of program development with it as well. And so I'm very grateful to have Dr. Maddox kind of helping me lead that. And then outside of medicine, I'm a little bit like Katie. We're an outdoorsy family. We are always out walking and hiking. It's 109 degrees in Dallas today, so it's probably less of that now. But yeah, and then I also have um, two small children, a, a girl and a boy. Well, so much fun. And we're so glad to have you guys here with us today. We'll just go ahead and jump right into our conversation with our first question, if that's fine. You guys feel free to, to chime in however you'd like to answer these. So we know Many times in the ICU will involve you guys towards the end of a patient's life, um, but we know that you guys do much more outside of the ICU. So to get things started, will you tell us what exactly is palliative care and how is that similar or different from end-of-life hospice care? Yeah, I think that's a great question and a, and a perfect place to start because I think there's this misperception, uh, certainly among the, the public, but among physicians as well, that palliative care is end-of-life care or that it's even synonymous with hospice care. And we even will use those terms synonymously. But really, there's been a movement in our field towards promoting a more progressive understanding of what palliative care is. And it's a a definition that has less to do with the trajectory of the of illness and less to do with an expectation that the child is is approaching the end of life and more to do with the, the care that's being provided. I took seven years of Latin, if you can believe it, so I always, I always launch back into the Latin root. But the root of, of palliative is a Latin word, which is palliare, which means to cloak. And so to palliate something is literally to cloak it. 
And so how we view palliative care is cloaking the burdens of disease. It acknowledges that sometimes disease can be treated, but not always, and that regardless of whether it can be treated or not, there are things that we can do to try to cloak, remove the burdens and encumbrances of, of disease. We know that some of the burdens of disease are, are physical burdens, and so we have extra training in symptom management, can do complex pain management, especially in children with um, high pain needs or children with medical complexity with unclear pain needs. But there are also, on top of physical burdens, there are emotional, spiritual, psychosocial burdens of disease. And so a big part of what we do is try to unburden families of those encumbrances as well. I love that. The one thing I'll add is the more people come to realize what we do and walk alongside us as we care for patients and families, they see, you know, we're treating symptoms, we're helping families understand what's going on, we're helping families make difficult decisions. And the question we get often is, why weren't you involved sooner? And so I think as we start to shift this understanding of what palliative care is, both among families, and like Stockton said, in the medical community, we notice that we get involved sooner, we get invited sooner, because you need symptoms managed, and you need to understand what's going on, and you need help making these decisions all along the way, not just in the last days, weeks, months of life. I want to address as well one piece of what you said, Zach, which is the distinction between palliative care and hospice care. And so I view palliative care as the umbrella that provides this sort of extra support, unburdening of disease across the spectrum of disease. Hospice is the piece of that umbrella that's right at the very end of life. And so by definition, it is care for children that are expected or for whom we would not be surprised if they died within six months. And so it's a similar version of care, but more specific to that end of life period and perhaps a little bit more tailored towards that last season of life. And because, like you mentioned, people think of us as end-of-life or hospice care, I'll just name that from the beginning when I meet with families and say, you know, a lot of people ask me this or a lot of people have heard of palliative care and think that it has to do with death or dying or hospice care. And I want you to know that that's a small part of what we do. I'm here to talk with you about how things are going right now. And so by my naming that fear, it it helps to um, just bring it out in the open and to help people understand. I'm not denying it. Yes, that is a part of what we do. And sometimes children die and we're here to help walk families through that journey. But it, like Stockton mentioned, it's a small part of the umbrella. I think that's really helpful. And I, I hope by this conversation we're having today, we can increase awareness of the role of palliative care and hopefully get you guys involved much sooner on some cases for perhaps even a better outcome. As we move forward, Alice, do you want to jump into our case and our next question? Yeah. So let's frame this around a 15-year-old male admitted to the PICU with respiratory failure. He has a history of high-risk AML and has had a bone marrow transplant for us. He's then had a prolonged course now complicated by invasive fungal pneumonia. The oncology and ICU teams are worried that this may be fatal and are now reaching out to the palliative care team for helping communicating this to the family and discussing the next steps of care. This case is really the perfect example of, well, maybe, honestly, maybe an extreme example of wishing a family wishing that they had met your team sooner. When you get this consult, how do you think about it and how do you how do you get yourself involved in such an acute and high emotion time? That's really challenging. <laughs> I think you you named a lot of reasons for that. This patient has had a long history and a lot of interaction with the medical system before meeting us and so they're bringing all of that with them to this meeting. And sometimes that's positive and sometimes that's negative and most of the time it's a mix of both. And so we have to step into that space knowing that we are invited guests, but that we're a little bit late to the party. 
And so we're not going to come like a bull in a china shop saying this is what's going on and this is what you have to do. And if you don't get it, you're in denial, right? We would never be invited back if that's how we navigated that. And so it's just coming and approaching the family with a lot of humility and uh, openness to hearing what they want to say and an eagerness to listen to their story. And so we start every patient interaction, every visit that we do with tell me what's been going on, tell me what you're hearing. And so that's what we would start in this scenario and then follow the patient where they and the family where they take that. If I go into the room with an agenda, nine times out of 10, the patient will bring it up before I bring it up myself by just talking. What's going on? What are the other doctors telling you? How does he look to you? What happened next? And families are smart and they get it. And especially a family like this, who's like we said, been in the hospital for a long time, they pick up on things. Now that one time out of 10, if a family doesn't bring it up and this situation feels fairly urgent based on the clinical scenario, I'll just again, be really forthright and say, Hey, I'm really sorry, but you know, I'm hearing from the team. They're worried about X, Y, or Z. And I know this is hard to talk about, but I think we need to talk about what we do next because I'm worried what might happen. And so we try to, like I mentioned, follow families where they want to take us. But if there's something that, that is urgent that we need to address, we're going to address it. We're going to just kind of open that door and, and take families through it with us. And maybe we can learn more from this case. You know, next time we're taking care of a seriously ill patient, what are the general principles that we should think of that might warrant a palliative care evaluation? That's a great question. And it's, um, in some sense, it's a moving target. And it's like Justice Thomas's thing that you know it when you see it, right? But there are some some guidelines that we can we can talk through. I think from a, a big picture standpoint, if you're asking the question of whether palliative care should be involved, it's probably time to involve palliative care. Um, and we like to be helpful in helping make that determination of whether it's an appropriate referral or not. And it's very rare that we say, well, it's not time for that yet. Most of the time we like being there early. In general, children that have complex chronic diagnoses that are struggling, but also children that have new diagnoses that are encountering new information and and sort of walking this road for the first time um, would be appropriate. We like to be consulted not just when there is concern for a poor prognosis, but also when there is uncertainty about what that prognosis is to kind of help families wade through that. And then, I don't know, another piece of me thinks that if you think that this is a child that just the family needs more support, whether because there's a lot of information or a lot of shifting providers or a lot of shifting expectations, or even if the relationship with the primary team is fractured, we, I think, can be helpful in trying to administer to those relationships and to try to be, be an advocate on behalf of the, of the patient to make sure that they're feeling heard. You guys have heard us mention several times early, early, early. <laughs> um, and I just, I want to be clear that the reason we say that is, yes, it's easier for us when we're involved early. But the larger reason is patient-facing and family-facing. And so this case that we're talking about, when we get invited, the patient's already in respiratory failure. Um, The family has been through this already. It's time to make a decision right now. That is so much harder for a family, for us to ask them to do that with somebody that they've never met. Whereas you contrast that with, maybe we got introduced at the first relapse of this cancer or at bone marrow transplant. And so now we've had six months, 12 months to build rapport and trust with a family and to really softly and gently get into hypotheticals and, you know, kind of touch that dangerous and scary place. What if this happens? And then, and then step back. But I'm so grateful that we're not there yet. In that situation, I walk into that room and it's a totally different vibe. It's a totally different setting. And it's, Hi, Maria. Hi, George. How are you? It's so good to see you again. I'm sorry that we're here. 
I know that we've talked about this before. I think we're in that place that we've talked about before. And that's just such an easier and I think more supportive way for a family to go through this horrible, horrible thing and try to make a a decision in the midst of really such a huge tragedy as opposed to, hey, let me introduce myself. You don't know me from Adam, but I'm going to help you wade through making the most difficult decision of your life. I want to provide a little bit of a more specific answer to your question, because there is a group of palliative care physicians that have thought intentionally about what are the actual referral criteria that we should be referencing. There's an organization called CAPC, which is C-A-P-C, the Center for the Advancement of Palliative Care. And they came up with a list of those referral criteria. It was two doctors who are much renowned in our field, Sarah Freebird and Casey Osengay. And I want to read to you what the intensive care criteria are, just so we can say them out loud. They break their referrals into what they call automatic consults, like palliative care should be involved every time, and suggested consults. So of diagnoses that would prompt an automatic consult, uh, the first is prolonged or failed attempt to wean mechanical ventilation. The second is multi-organ system failure. The third is compassionate extubation. And the fourth is severe head injury following NAT. And then of their suggested consults, the first is a PICU stay longer than two weeks. The second is an irreversible brain injury that will impact functional status. And the third is an immersion injury. And so I think that the big picture principles still apply, but those perhaps give a little bit of a more specific framework for particular diagnoses. I think that can be helpful. I think it's really helpful hearing all this. You know, Even in my short amount of time working with you guys, it's been clear to see how much of, of an asset you guys are for our families. The ICU team changes over every seven days, but you guys can be a constant contact for these families who are going through a, a terrible part of their of their life. And I think just being more aware of this and maybe even giving us our, a simple like reminder, you know, this patient's really sick. Gosh, they've been here a couple of weeks. We probably should have some additional help from palliative care. It might be able to even give them a better outcome or at least make their stay somewhat more tolerable. So introducing palliative care, that can be an emotionally charged conversation. Do you have any recommendations how we can best introduce the idea that, hey, someone from palliative care is going to come by and speak with you guys? Like you mentioned, there's a hesitation to involve us. And a big part of it, a big hurdle, I think, is because people are scared to bring it up because it's hard to talk about. What we teach learners and tell people who almost everyone asks us this question, we actually get asked a lot, can you change your name? And that's a whole nother podcast. Um, <laughs> I don't want to say palliative care. Can you? Can we call you something different? Um specialist. <laughs> no, we actually, right. we call them yeah. Panda at Children's DC. It's yeah. referred to as the oh, Panda yeah. team. We know all about yep, the Panda we know team. Oh, pandas. nice. Yeah. Okay. I yep. wonder if it's, I don't think I think there's a lot of pros and cons for like the people that change their name have a good reason. And I think that we, we go back and forth all the yeah. time. But there's I mean, some koalas out there too. Yeah. Wait, really? There's a quilt, okay. there's a quilt uh-huh. team. There's a Pelican crew. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we could talk for a long time, probably a whole nother episode about pros and cons and of that. But in some form or fashion, the word palliative is going to come out. And so the way that we talk about that is, you know, introduce ourselves and say, hey, we're here. We're an extra team here to be an extra layer of support for kids who are going through complicated situations. And what that support looks like depends on the family's needs. And sometimes that can be help with things like symptoms. Sometimes that can be help with communication to make sure that the teams are communicating well with each other and giving you the information that you need, but also listening to you and hearing what you have to say and what's important to you. 
And then a third way we can be helpful is helping with decisions. If there is ever a point where somebody comes and offers A or B or a big decision comes up, we can sit down and, and think through that with you and, and what would it look like and, and what makes the most sense for your child and for you you as a family. And then all after that, I'll go into the piece about, you know, naming the fear of end of life in hospice and then just check in with families. Does all that sound okay with you? Is now an okay time to talk? I've never been kicked out of the room and most people receive that really well. We often say that if we, if we can find our way into the room, usually we're not going to get kicked out, that we're going to be there for the long haul. I want to add to what Katie said, two metaphors that I often use with families that I find really helpful. The first of those applies to the case where we really are there less for medical decision-making and more for support or for uncertainty or for prolonged hospitalization. And in that case, what I will tell families is that the hospital can feel a little bit like a conference table. And on one side of the table is all of the doctors and nurses and RTs and nurse practitioners and also administrators and insurance people. And on the other side of the table is just you. And that can feel really overwhelming. And our job is to sit on your side of the table and to make sure that you have a voice in all of this and that we're speaking up on your behalf. The second metaphor that I often use applies more to the the medical decision-making cases where there's decision to make or there's a branch point. And I will say to families, this situation is a little bit like holding a map and you have no idea how to read it. You don't know what's at the end of all these roads. You don't know what the roads look like. You don't know how hard this is going to be. Our job is not to tell you which road to take. Our job is to help you read the map and make sure that you're going into whichever road you take with open eyes and that that road is what fits your values for your family and for your child. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing those. Katie, before we move on to the bigger conversations, you had mentioned that in our case of a 15-year-old AML had a transplant not doing well, that maybe at the point of bone marrow transplant, you would have liked to meet the family and then maybe find the space to talk about hypotheticals. And I'm really curious, when you are able to do this with families, is this you responding to specific fears and questions that the family, parents, child are bringing up? Or is this you sort of making sure that you get to circle back to these big questions when you meet with them? Like how how purposeful are you about hypotheticals early in these courses? I think it really depends on the clinical scenario. If there's a lot of uncertainty, you know, first I start with them. What have you heard from the team? And if they're just all good news and positive, I'll say, you know, I've spoken with the team too and got an update. Is is it okay if I share with you what I've heard? And then I'll share some of the uncertainty and might even mention some specific possibilities. You know, I've heard from the team that, like you mentioned, that this is going really well, X, Y, and Z. I've also heard from them that they're worried about what might happen if, A, B, and C doesn't improve. And so by using this I worry language, it can make it a safe space to talk about these things that might come up. And so depending on how worried or how medically likely a certain complication is to come up, that sort of dictates how detailed am I going to go into that with families. If I think, hey, there's a real possibility that this could progress to respiratory failure and might never wake up, I'm going to go there and talk about that and what that might look like and what choices might come up if that happens. If he's, you know, day one of BMT, I'm probably not going to mention, there's a chance he might get invasive fungemia and we we might have to make really hard decisions, but I might keep it a little more broad. You know, what have you heard about possible complications? I'm really hopeful none of these things have happened. You know, other families have told me that they're worried about something specific. I know that this can be really challenging and, and things don't always go perfectly. Um, I want you to know that we'll be here with you every step of the way. So like a more broad expression of my worry, depending on where they are in their clinical course. 
I think that's really helpful. And listeners, you should know that Katie and Stockton help us out with local didactics here and have given us some previous training and how to communicate with families. And Katie, when I hear you use the I worry language, I definitely adopted that. And every time I, I use that with a family, I definitely think of you and, and you teaching us that. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at critpeds and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye.